Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly podcast. If you're in the Orlando area, we hope you're able to join us for one of our services. Please check out faithassembly.org for more information or follow us on social media at faithORL. We hope this message will be an inspiration to help you find all that God has for your life. Enjoy the message. Amen. So if there is even a little inclination or a touch or a talk of God for, towards the mission field, this is a good day for you because God will be speaking to your life. Help me welcome with all of our hearts and with a faith assembly welcome, uh, Dick Brockton, missionary, prolific author. By the way, he has these books out there today. Let's get ready to hear what God is going to say. Help me welcome him with a hand. God bless you. Love you. Love you too. Do it. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus told his disciples, As the Father sent me, so send I you. When I was seven years old, I was sent to boarding school. It was a great school. It positively shaped my life. I learned to play rugby and cricket and field hockey. I studied Latin and French in elementary school. I joined the Boy Scouts and acted in plays and tried to learn to play the clarinet. School was wonderful, but it wasn't home. We would go to school for three months, and then we would go home for one month. At the end of term, I would gather my little traveling bag and go sit on the stone steps of school my eyes fixed on the bend of the road around which my father would come to take me home. For all my little heart wanted was to go home. And that is still what my little heart wants. This world is not our home. We do not belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers. We are pilgrims. We are aliens. We are looking for a heavenly city to live in this age. Paul says in Philippians, is Christ, but to die is gain. And we do not know, he goes on two verses later, what will be chosen for us, but this we know, to be with Christ is far, far better. And so here we are together assembled, sitting on the stone steps of earth, our eyes and our hearts fixed on the eastern sky because we want to go home. Romans 8, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we who are in this tent, 2 Corinthians, groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And we who have borne the image of the man of dust, 1 Corinthians, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And yet here we sit on the stone steps of earth longing to go home. And the Bible is so very clear that the path home is through the nations. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world to every ethne as a witness. And then the end will come. In 1982, there were 2.5 billion people on the world that did not know Jesus. Of those, 1.5 billion were what we call unreached. No Bible in their language, no church in their culture, no missionaries in their midst, no hope in their hearts. Today, 40 years later, despite all of our gospel advance and our somewhat naive triumphalism, there are now six billion people in the world that are lost, of which 3.2 billion are unreached, gathered in 7,000 unreached people groups, the ethne, which constitute 42% of the world. The math is sobering. The challenge and the logic is clear. The gospel must be preached to all 7,000 of those unreached ethne. And how shall they believe if they don't hear Romans 10? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach if they are not sent? I submit to you today that the greatest need in our world is the same one that Jesus pointed out when he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field. We need preachers. We need announcers. We need proclaimers. We need town criers who are sent to fight and to bleed and to pray just like Jesus did. We are sent to fight as Jesus fought. Mark chapter 11, we see Jesus angrier than anywhere else in the Gospels. It's the last week of his life. He's going to the Temple Mount. He enters the outermost portion called the Court of the Gentiles. It's where God Almighty designed a place for the nations to meet Jehovah. And when Jesus, flint-faced, headed to the cross to die for the sins of the world, sees the place for the world, consumed by selfish gain, he unleashes his wrath. Now, I don't know what your mental image of Jesus is, but he was not white, he didn't have feathered hair, and he didn't walk around cuddling a little lamb on his shoulders. 
Picture those shoulders heaving. Picture those brown eyes flashing. Picture a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern God-man flipping over tables and flinging around chairs. We don't know if Jesus actually viscerally, physically laid hands on people, but we do know that the text says he drove them out of the temple. Now, I've lived for over 40 years in Africa and the Arab world. I've been in many crowded markets. There are goats and sheep and camels and cows. There's colorful fruit and fly-covered meat. There's noise and bartering. There are new and used clothing. And everything from fridges to stolen cell phones are on display. What there is not is peace, calm, and quiet. Do you think it would work to address a market like that and say, oh, excuse me, dear people of money and merchandise. Would you please quickly collect your wares and exit stage left? We kind of need this space for prayer. Eyes flashing, chest heaving, arms thrashing around. Middle Eastern Jesus lifts up his voice and screams out, Isaiah 56. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord, Even to them I will give within my house and my walls a place and a name better than sons and daughters. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What we have here is a Jesus-modeled example of what I call apostolic nasty. Now, I do not mean by that word nasty, gross or disgusting. Let me explain. Have you heard about Michael Jordan? You know that name? Tiger Woods, Muhammad Ali, Kobe Bryant, Mike Tyson, Tom Brady. You know these names? What made those guys multiple world champions? Obviously, they were phenomenal athletes, but at that level, at that professional level, everybody's sublime. And we have, at that level, access to all the same coaches and the training and the weight rooms and the doctors and the food and the facilities. What separated those guys was that they had a little bit of nasty. They weren't only going to beat you in world championships. They were going to beat you in practice. They were going to beat you in tiddlywinks. They were going to beat you first in line to the bus and get the best seat. They were going to fight you and beat you at everything, every day, every time. And they were going to love doing it because they hated to lose because they had a little bit of nasty. It is time for the people of God to get our nasty back. But it's apostolic nasty in light of the gospel, which means this. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. Not a carnal edginess, a consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. To the extent that if anything restricts or confuses or 
discolors the nations from coming and having access to Jesus, we fight it. We go after it. We cast it out. We go to war. Now remember critically that this zeal of Jesus was levied against his own house and it consumed him. I am not inciting you to attack another house. We are responsible to clean our own. I am asking you to rise in the spirit of apostolic nasty and go after anything in you that is not aligned with the purposes of God in your generation. What's in your heart? What's on your phone? What are you watching on your computer? What are your motives? What's in your mind? What's in your house? How do you spend your time? What do you think on? What are your ambitions? Is there anything that either is impure or is distracting from the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples? If there's anything, you got to go after that thing. You got to cut it off. You got to cast it out. You got to cleanse the temple. And it's not the time for being genteel, it's the time for apostolic nasty. We see this also in the life of Paul. We know that pre-converted Paul was a little bit nasty and that Old Testament zeal like many prophets and reformers before him, he violently dealt with those whom he thought betrayed the faith. He was misguided, of course. He cast the believers into prison. He hounded them from city to city. He killed them. And it took a revelation of Jesus to change him from an angry, racist excluder to a glorious includer and befriender of all peoples. But let us not think that that Damascus light knocked all the nasty out of him. We read the post-conversion Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 who writes, love is kind, love is patient, love is gentle, love is long-suffering, love is, love is. And we think that Paul got all cute and fluffy. But the revelation of Jesus simply changed his focus. It didn't take away his fire. The same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians also wrote Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you so soon leave the gospel of grace to follow a different gospel? You might as well go the whole way and castrate yourself. Don't get mad at me, that's in the Bible. (laughs) The same guy rebuked Peter to his hypocritical face when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, he yells at the leader of the Sanhedrin. John Mark, you're off the team. Two guys causing trouble in the church, turn them over to Satan for the salvation of their souls. If anyone, he writes in 1 Corinthians 16, doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And I would be accursed myself for the sake of my brethren, Romans 9, the Israelites. This is not a balanced man. This is a man on fire. This is a man with zeal for God's house and God's glory and gospel advance to all the nations of the world. This is a man, if you confused or denied or blocked the gospel, he would run right over you. He wanted to be with Christ. He knew the way home was through the nations. His ambition was to preach Christ where Christ was not known. He pressed continually towards the regions beyond. Paul lived as Jesus lived and died. 
apostolic nasty. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. Now you might be sitting here today and saying, well, I'm neither Jesus nor Paul. I'm excused. A few years ago, we were in the country of Oman visiting one of our missionary families, a country that has more Starbucks stores than people that follow Jesus. And in this home, early one morning, I walked into the kitchen. The young mother was there feeding her toddler, who was pertly perched on a high chair with a Cheerio cutely stuck on her forehead. Worship music was playing. A sunbeam cascaded through the window. It was a beautiful, serene, domestic scene. And I looked to the white ceramic tile above the sink where this young mother had written in her elegant cursive, it's wartime. Friends, if we're going to go home in our generation, we're going to have to fight as Jesus fought. We're going to have to cleanse our temple. We're going to have to cut off the things that confuse or retard or discourage the mission of God to all peoples. We're going to have to have a little bit of apostolic nasty. Not only do we fight as Jesus fought, we also are going to have to bleed as Jesus bled. The country now known as the United Arab Emirates was formed in 1971. It used to be known as the Trucial States. The name derived from international truces that these tribal clans made to survive and to trade. In 1960, two medical doctors went on a vision trip to the Trucial States. They were married to one another called the Kennedys. They rented an old Land Rover and drove many hours into the desert. Coming to an oasis village, they encountered a woman who had been in labor for three days. Quickly diagnosing that they discovered her bladder was so distended with urine she couldn't give passage through the birth canal. Not having their medical instruments, Dr. Kennedy, the man, popped open the hood of the Land Rover, found the smallest diameter hose, cut it out of the engine, made a catheter, handed it to his wife. She inserted it into the woman, drained her bladder, and helped her safely deliver a baby. The sheikh, which is the chief ruler of that tribe, was so thankful that mother and child were saved. He said, I know you have a different faith from ours, but I invite you here to this village, open a clinic for our women and children, and save their lives. And the Kennedys did. When a Muslim baby is born, the first thing that they hear is the Islamic confession of faith. The baby is lifted up towards the heavens, and whispered in their ear is said, I confess that there is no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. Well, as Dr. Kennedy brought all of these Muslim babies into the world, she too would pray. And lifting up those precious souls towards the Lord, she would whisper into their name, ears, and over their lives, the name of Jesus. And then she would visit their homes, and she would tell their mother's Bible stories, and she'd pray over those children as they grew, and bear witness to the one who can grant eternal life. And she would explain how all men and women can be born again. 
The 11th baby born in that hospital was named Muhammad. He was born to that tribal sheikh. That tribal sheikh's name is Zaid, who became the founder of the United Arab Emirates in 1971. Little Muhammad was prayed for at birth, visited as he grew, heard the Bible stories, exposed to the word of truth. When his father became the founder of the United Arab Emirates, Muhammad bin Zaid became the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. It is the richest of all the emirates. And for the last two years running, Muhammad bin Zaid, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, has been voted the most powerful Arab in all of the world. He is behind the Abraham Accords being signed with Israel. He's behind the tolerance emanating out of the emirates. He mentored the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and has brought a liberalizing focus to that country. He has now given his protection to that clinic where he was born, now a major hospital. He gave $70 million for a neonatal clinic. Above the door of the hospital is scripture. At every table are Bibles. People from around the Arabian Peninsula can come and receive the word of God. And it all goes back to Dr. Kennedy lifting up that baby boy and praying in his ear. I share that history to give context for bleeding. In the early days of the clinic, there were no generators nor fridges. When blood was needed, the staff had to donate it. A list of the blood types was written and taped on the wall, and Dr. Kennedy, the woman, was O negative, which is the universal donor. So she gave more blood than anyone else. The testimony of her life was that she donated so often and so generously that she lived anemic, always sick, always tired, Always weak, always frail, because she was always giving her blood. In one surgery, her patient began to hemorrhage, and so Dr. Kennedy scrubbed out, donated her blood, scrubbed back in, and saved the patient's life along with the baby. She gave her own blood, and she lived anemic, so that hundreds of Muslim lives could be saved, so thousands of Muslim babies could be prayed over in the name of Jesus, so that some of them would rise up and grow to change the world and that others would live to be doubly born. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, I want to know Christ. We like that. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We like that. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What was the context for the sufferings of Jesus that Paul is referring to? The redemption of the world. Beloved, there is a knowledge of God that can only be gained when we join him, when we fellowship with him in suffering for the redemption of the nations. Not in suffering because we're Republican, not suffering because we homeschool, not suffering because we're black or white or brown or a woman or old or young, not suffering because we vaxxed or didn't vax, not suffering because we masked or didn't mask. No, there is a sweet knowledge of God that we can only access when we join him in suffering for the redemption of the world. 
That knowledge of God cannot, is not gained in an air-conditioned church. It's not found at a banquet table. It's not realized in a lazy boy in front of a television at home. No, that sweet knowledge of God is only found away from home, away from safe, away from normal, in the darkest and most difficult places of earth as we suffer with Jesus for the redemption of the world. Do not feel sorry for missionaries. Do not feel sorry for the persecuted church. Do not feel sorry for the believers in prison or under duress. You should view them with a holy jealousy. They have a knowledge of God that we have not yet gained. They know Jesus in a way we don't understand. They have entered into the fellowship by suffering for the redemption of the nations, not for their personality not for their political views, not for their big mouth on social media, but because they suffered that men and women might be saved. Therein is a knowledge of God that we should all be hungering for. But we won't if we never bleed as Jesus bled. We see this in the life of Paul in Acts 16. He goes to Philippi. Lydia and her household get saved. A servant girl is freed from demons. Her handlers are enraged. Paul is turned over to magistrates. Paul and Silas are beaten and bloodied. They're chained to a prison wall. They sing, the earth shakes, and the Philippian jailer and his family are saved. The magistrates in fear realize that something is amiss and cap in hand, they beg Paul to leave the city and the prison to which he declines by saying, no sir, I'm a Roman citizen. What's going on here culturally? By Roman law, no citizen could be beaten or sentenced without trial, due process. The magistrates had violated their own law. Further, in Roman and Greek civilization, there was a system of patron-client privilege. Patrons had the power to grant favors or funds, and then clients receiving those favors would express thanks through duty and service and obedience. And at the beginning of the story, the magistrates are the patrons. They have the power. At the end, there's a power inversion. And now Paul has the power over them. All he has to do is report to the governor that the magistrates broke Roman law. They did not do due process. They'll lose their position, their place, their income, their status, and their honor. They are now in Paul's hand. Paul is the patron. They are the client. And they come cap in hand. Please, sir, don't cause us any trouble. Just leave the prison and leave the city. Which begs the question, why did Paul wait to play the Roman card. He didn't have to bleed. He and Silas didn't have to go to prison. He could have claimed his privilege and gone free. Why did he wait? The answer is suggested for us in the last verse of Acts chapter 16 where it's recorded that the last thing that Paul did before he leaves Philippi is to go to Lydia's house to visit the church. By that act... Paul is exerting his blood purchase power. 
He is publicly making a statement to the powers that be. Do you see this woman? Do you see the church in her house? They are under my protection. They are associated with me. I'm leaving town. But if you lift one finger against my woman and my church and my house, I'm coming back, reporting you to the governor, and life as you know it is over for you. They're with me. Don't touch them. Why did Paul wait to play the Roman card until after he was bloodied and beaten? Why was he willing to bleed? Because the suffering allowed him to protect Lydia and the new church and led to the salvation of the Philippian jailer and his family. If Paul would have declined to bleed, the new church is unprotected and the Philippian jailer and his family go to hell. Friends, if we are going to go home, we're going to have to be willing to bleed. Do you have the right to play your Roman card? You have one. Do you have the right to continue to pastor or attend an American church? Do you have the right to live near your grandchildren and children and have free babysitting for the rest of your life? you have the right to a second cell phone and a third car and a cabin on the lake? Do you have the right to a nice home and retirement income? Do you have the right to live in this culture doing just what you've been doing, just like you've always done? You do. And it's not necessarily sin. But is there anyone here willing to lay down those cards for some Lydia or Philippian jailer's family in the deepest, deepest, darkest places of earth? Is there anyone willing to say, whatever rights and privileges and comforts I have, for Lydia and for the jailer, and because I just want to go home, I'm willing to bleed a little bit. This is a generous church. You support a thousand missionaries. You give hundreds of thousands of dollars. We are thankful, and on behalf of the missionary community, we are grateful. But maybe I can ask, have you bled yet? And maybe your gift is in business, and your calling is to send. We respect that, we honor that. But have you bled yet? Do you want to go home bad enough? that in your own way, from your own gifting, you're willing to bleed. Is anyone here willing to lay down privilege and bleed a little bit so that we can all go home? We're going to have to fight. We're going to have to bleed. And lastly, we're going to have to pray as Jesus prayed. We are all aware that Jesus prayed early and often and over critical decisions. We know he prayed prayers like, Not my will, but thine. Father, glorify thy name. But I think what awes us about Jesus and prayer is the mystery of God praying. That Jesus, God on the earth, prayed much. 
What mystifies us beyond that awe is what Jesus is doing now for Hebrews 7.25 simply states, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Not only did God on the earth pray, but the crucified, resurrected, ascended, glorified God of heaven and earth, now seated on the throne in splendor, to whom is given all authority and receives all praise, from whom comes all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign God of all, how is he spending his eternal time? Praying for you and for me. Staggering yet simple, the application is obvious. If God on the earth prays, if God on the throne prays, what should we be doing? Yet we don't always feel like praying, do we? At least I don't. Recently, I was walking the streets one evening in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where my wife and I live, talking to Jesus, and I was tired, and I was worn out, and I was discouraged, and I didn't feel like praying, and I didn't feel like evangelizing, and I didn't feel like being a church planter or a missionary or a leader. I was just empty, and all I wanted to do, if I'm honest with you, was go hide in Wyoming somewhere and flip burgers where nobody knew my name. And I said to the Lord, Jesus, this is a little bit of a problem. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like being a missionary. And yet my life has been given to this. And I write the books and I travel and speak and yell at people telling them to fight and to bleed and to pray like you did. And yet my tired little soul just doesn't want to do it. I don't feel it right now. And I'm sorry, Jesus, but I just don't feel like it. As I walked, Jesus brought my wife Jennifer to my mind, whom I love with all of my heart and my soul. And Jennifer loves tiny houses. Do you know what those are? Containers, little spaces you convert to little places to live. I have no interest in tiny houses. None. But every so often, she'll walk up to me with her phone and show me a picture of a a little tiny house. And even though I'm not interested in them at all, I'm very interested and invested in my wife. And I wasn't born yesterday, right? So I wrestle my rascally heart and I say to Jennifer, wow, that's awesome. Show me another one. (laughs) So I said to Jesus, Lord, honestly, right now, I just don't have it. I just don't have the zeal or the passion or the energy or the emotion or the feelings for prayer or for missions or for leadership. I don't have it, Jesus, right now. It's, it's not there. But I'm very interested in you, and I love you with all of my heart. And I know that you are very interested in saving the world. So I will wrestle my rascally heart to the things that you lived and died for. And I will pray. And I will witness. And I will disciple. And I'll plant churches amongst all the nations because I love you. So, beloved people of God, I am not asking this morning if you are interested in missions or if you feel like leaving this nation or if you have the passion or the emotions to plant the church amongst the unreached. I'm simply asking this. Do you love Jesus? 
and do you want to go home? If the answer to that is yes, it actually doesn't matter what you feel like or what you're interested in. You just wrestle your rascally little heart to what Jesus is interested in. Doesn't matter what we feel like doing. Doesn't matter where we want to go. Do we love him? And do we want to go home? It was 1942, the dark days of the Second World War. Alone in Europe, England was resisting the Nazis. Winston Churchill was the prime minister and faced a crisis because the coal miners went on strike. The coal fueled the British war effort. The miners felt unrecognized and underpaid. So Churchill met with them and gave a famous speech, which I'll paraphrase. He thundered at them. We are going to win the war. And when we do, we are going to have a big parade. First in line will be the airmen. They fought the Luftwaffe, won the Battle of Britain. They shall be cheered. Next will be the Navy. They braved the high seas and delivered supplies to our worldwide allies. They shall be honored. Then will come the Army. They took the bloody ground, held it at great cost. They shall be applauded. Then, last of all, will come a band of dirty, disheveled men. They will be old and worn and tired. They will have suit on their arms and their faces. They are the coal miners, and they shall be asked, where were you in England's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. We cut the coal that won the war. Friends, while it is true there are still 3.15 billion unreached people on the earth, while it's true they are entrenched in 7,000 unreached people groups, while it's true that they constitute 42% of the earth, it is also true that we are going to win the war. Revelation 7-9, there will be a multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, round the throne and worshiping Jesus. We are going to win this war. We are going to win from every nation and every tribe, people who will praise Jesus with us. And when we do, we are going to have in that heavenly place a big old parade. And first in line in that parade will be the apostolic fathers, many who of them died a violent death far away from home, and they will be cheered. And then will come the giants of the patristic period, Athanasius, the man of steel, Origen, Augustine, Tertullian, and others, and they will be lauded. And then will come the saints of the Middle Ages, St. Francis, Aquinas, Lull, and they will be praised. And then will come the legends of our age, Trasher, and Trotter, and Carey, and Taylor, and Livingston and Stud and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and Bill Bright and all of them will be honored and then last of all of them will come a retired grandmother from Orlando who lives on a social security check and gets up at five o'clock every morning gets out those old missionary prayer cards and prays on her knees that the Lord of glory will be exalted in all of the earth there will come a little barefoot girl from the Congo, never even went to secondary school. There will come a Chinese house pastor who's been in isolation for 25 years, never even seen another human. 
and they will be asked, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were down on our knees with our faces to the Lord. We prayed the prayers that won the war. We together sit on the stone steps of earth. We love Jesus. We want to go home. And we lift the Maranatha prayer, longing for our liberation. We are sent as Jesus was sent to fight, to bleed, to pray. And I just want to close by reminding you Jesus didn't do that at home. The Father sent the Son away from the safety of heaven to die on a cross for you, for me, and for the three billion that we mourn. So I close as I begin that the greatest need in missions today for laborers, those that will leave home so all of us can go home because the path is still through the nations, fighting, bleeding, and praying. Looking, Titus 2, verse 13, for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Faith Assembly podcast. Thank you for joining us in pursuit of growing closer to Christ. Stay tuned for more messages released every week. God bless.